You're listening to episode 43 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today, I have two lovely guests. They are ladies who are regulars in the Sassmouth Dames Film Club. So today I have returning Pearl Quinn, who is the archivist in RTE, Radio Talafish Aaron, the <laughs> national broadcaster here in Ireland. Oh, they'd be so pleased with that. <laughs> who, who was um, with us last time um, for the Betty Davis in Storm Center episode, if you'll recall. And then joining me for the first time today is Selena Murphy, who has her own podcast podcast, One Fab Day podcast, and works for One Fab Day, which is the premier wedding planning organization or, um, you know, group in Ireland. So I'm just thrilled to have you both. So Selena, since you're new, we're going to turn to you first. How would you like to open up this discussion of Parnell, which is the film we're talking about from 1937? I would like to start the conversation how I like to start all conversations talking about Clark Abel's face. <laughs> okay. And specifically his facial hair. Okay. Because it's, oh, first of all, it's alarming to me to see Clark Gable. So this is my first time watching Parnell and really alarming to me to see him in period costume because that's not something I've seen him in other than in one of my favorites, Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those two films are set quite close together. So to me, I kept reading him as Rep Butler while he was being Parnell, which probably goes to show that he wasn't doing the best performance of his life in Parnell. Um, and I found it quite alarming that he had the gorgeous sideburns. But still, uh, still like devilishly attractive, you know, in the way that he is in all his films, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was an alarming one for me because I actually, I love Gone with the Wind. And after I watched Parnell, I actually went back and looked at some clips of Gone with the Wind on YouTube to like, remind myself that yes he is a really magnetic movie star and yes he can have loads of chemistry with another actress because his performance in Parnell felt so flat to me I don't know if you guys agree but I just found it really hard to stick with him through a lot of the film there was one scene in particular that stands out to me in Parnell that I think could have been a really good scene which is when uh, Clark Gable and Myrna Loy are in the fog and it's supposed to be their big romantic scene and I did quite find myself, you know, getting lost in that scene in the way that like all good movie scenes should make you feel. But other than that, there was a lot of me checking myself going, really, do I really like this actor? Have I really seen, (laughs) you know, like dozens of his films? Like it was, yeah, quite a shock to me, this film, how, you know, little regard I held for him as an actor. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> no it's fine. That's interesting. I can see you're really torn to say it. I can, I can tell. Yeah, um, I mean, I, yeah, like he, he's still dreamy in this film. Like you know, he still is that attractive, like um, you know, swarthy movie star character that you always love when you see some of his more successful movies. To me. But yeah, there was disappointment on my end, I have to say. Well, it's really, really interesting because um, a confession here, and I've said this to Megan before, I'm not a huge Clark Gable fan. It sounds, you know, terrible. I I do admire his presence, though. I recognise he's fantastic charisma. And when he's on screen, you can't really look at anybody else in anything I've seen him in. That's certainly true of Gone with the Wind. But uh, this film is absolutely trashed online when you look at it, particularly, I think, with Irish people. They just can't can't get past the inaccuracies and the fact that he doesn't have a beard. And it's interesting 
interesting what you say about this facial hair because I think that was an issue at the time with his fans in the studio that no one could take the idea because Parnell in real life had this big bushy Victorian beard um, you know we can't put Clark Gable in a beard we have to be able to see his gorgeous face presumably or you know just that tiny moustache um, but I thought this movie was a bit of a pleasant surprise in a sense I guess as history it's terrible like it's it's really really bad but then all you know name me a really good film feature film in two hours you know um that has a historical setting, which is trying to represent a very complicated series of events that is good. For instance, The Favourite is not a historically accurate film and everybody's raving about it. I don't particularly like it, not just because of historical inaccuracies. I just don't like it. But I don't think when people are looking at that film or in 20, 30 years time, you know, will they look at it in the same way they look at something like this and say, you know, why do people think that was great at the time? Although in Parnell, nobody liked this at the time <laughs> or subsequently. But um, so if it's if you dismiss it as history, you know, as have anything valid to say about the time or about Parnell or Irish nationalism or anything. As melodrama I thought it worked quite well and I liked that Parnell was, or sorry, that Clark Gable was um, was quite in quite a different role you know. He was uncomfortable in it um, and he didn't you know, it, it wasn't him or famously as well, he didn't he didn't want to do Gone with the Wind um, um, after doing this period piece because and you know, his, he was famously reluctant to do Gone with the Wind afterwards so um, I think it's a, it's an interesting oddity, you know it's, it's not a fantastic movie but there's lots of things in it that I really liked and I thought it worked as melodrama. And it's not a cheap, nasty film either. It's MGM. So they lavished an awful lot of attention on sets and on 74 clothes. 74 sets by Cedric Gibbons. Oh, wow. 74. Okay. It seemed like there were a million extras in that film as well. Like mm. it was not a low budget film by any means. Yeah. They spent money on it. The dresses were great. Cedric Gibbons did the art design who everybody is discovering now because um, I think they highlighted his, his, some of his films that he worked on in the film festival last year, which is great. And um, Gowns by Adrian and there's lots of like very lavish gowns, lots of ribbons and bows and bustles and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, and as well, the thing I liked about it, two really strong supporting actresses in Edna Mae Oliver and she's Billy hilarious. Burke. Oh, she's wonderful. She has all the best lines. Um, there's a lot, they're, they're the comic foils, a comic relief. And then when I heard Billy Burke, and I'm one of these people who's terrible at spotting famous actors and actresses in, in, in um, supporting roles or even in lead roles in movies. As soon as I heard that voice, oh, it's Glinda <laughs> from The Wizard of Oz, which is one of my favourite films, which is an interesting parallel because that came out the same year as Gone with the Wind and Gone with the Wind famously beat um, Wizard of Oz and beat everything else at the Oscars the following year. So I thought, gosh, there's lots of little little things going on there that I, I quite like. But um, but I, I kind of would agree it's a, it's a bit of an oddity in, in all sorts of ways. But we're still worth watching. I think part of my struggle with Clark Gable in this movie is that I can see him trying really hard. Like, mm. I don't know the backstory to how he felt about this film, but I feel like he was really trying to get into the character and give a good performance. And I can almost... Like, that's why it was more uncomfortable to me that I could almost sense his, like, desperation to do well in the film and almost as if that was, like, distracting him from actually being in the moment like he is in so many of his other films where he gives, you know, to me a better performance. Myrna Loy is very defensive about this picture in her mm. memoir, Being and Becoming. And she says that it's the greatest romantic lead that Clark Cable ever played because he dropped all that macho BS yeah. that he normally does, that we mm. love him for, but that he really took a risk here and he tried to stretch himself and do more. Now, when he's with Myrna, those scenes, like you mentioned, Selena, with the, you know, um, the lost in the fog with the hot potatoes, mm. that's gorgeous. And the scene where he comes to dinner and she sends him off. And her eyes, that's Myrna's sex face. <laughs> the <laughs> eyes on it, that's Myrna like thinking about rolling in bed with Charles Stewart Parnell. <laughs> and um, so their scenes together are great. But whenever he's giving a speech, and there are so many speeches, I yeah. think about the withering criticism 
that Montgomery Clift held for um, Richard Burton. He said he doesn't act, he recites. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. devastating, um, you know, for Liz's um, uh, paramour there. But that's pretty much what I feel, that he's just saying these speeches, but it's so hard to convey a character and speeches. And every time mm-hmm. we see him, he's, on, you know, sailing for Ireland. You know, he's given a speech. He's in uh, Kilmainham jail. He's given a speech. It's like one after another. It's like, mm-hmm. can we see him talking to people in a, you know, in a, in a more like, I don't know, one-to-one basis? Well, he was, it's always I can kind of see the logic of casting him because he is such a, or was such a charismatic star and a huge star, the biggest star at that time, male star at that time. And Parnell was famously charismatic as well. And apparently had a very plain, straightforward speaking style when delivering a speech from, you know, from, I'm not terribly knowledgeable about the period. So, I mean, it was a bright bit of casting and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't bring myself to hate this. You know, no. I, I, it, it wouldn't be in my top 10, you know, but I wouldn't turn it off if I saw it coming on TV again. Um, so, and again, as it was, I thought the relationship between um, Parnell and, and interestingly, they called uh, Catherine O'Shea or Kitty O'Shea, Katie O'Shea, which I didn't quite understand. Well, that's the, the production code office. Um, oh, Joseph yes. Bream, they decided or believed that Kitty was uh, sort of slang for prostitute. That's or sex apparently worker. true. It's Victorian slang and it yeah. was uh, a term to denigrate her, the real Catherine O'Shea. Like the tabloid sort of yeah, yeah. title for Just her. Just diminishing you in every way, like not calling you by your proper name or whatever. So I, it's interesting that they knew that and, you know, they used the name Katie, but even not not even using um, Catherine, but Katie all the time. So and it was interesting. She had quite a strong and as far as I'm aware, again, you know, just speaking from a very basic reading in real life, she was a go between between Parnell and Gladstone when Parnell wasn't very well. He did suffer from ill health for most of his life or well, certainly the latter part of his life. And that's very much diminished. She's literally in the background and she saves the day in this kind of courtroom scene, which is quite well done. You know, it's it's again, it's a little bit of melodrama. Everybody loves a courtroom scene and she kind of comes in to save the day, but she can't even get in, you know, so they don't give her any agency, really. Mm-hmm. So it's a conservative film um, from that point of view. But then again, it's set in a conservative time. Um, so um, with the facial hair, um, mm-hmm. Stahl did want him to grow a beard and he said no. So his his compromise was the mutton shop. Uh, mm-hmm. I was really hoping it was written in his contract <laughs> that he could never have facial hair. I really like that idea of my head. But, you know, when he before he even has the mustache, though, in the pre-coats, he is hot as, you know, all get out without a mustache, too, like in mm-hmm. Red Dust or something. Mm. He's very dashing there. And isn't uh, one of the supporting actors Donald Crisp? Mm-hmm. And didn't he play an overseer in Red Dust? And he plays Davit in this, and he's rather good in this as well. Some he of the supporting good. actors are are quite good. Disappointingly, few Irish actors in it, as far as I could make out. If they were there, they were there in very minor roles. Um, so it's an interesting film from that point of view as well. It starts off in America, which I thought was interesting. It starts with the American visit. I, maybe you know, just to set the scene for American viewers of it. I don't know. His mother was American. Oh, his mother was American. Yeah, mm-hmm. in, yeah, yeah. So that would make sense. So so, um, I mean, there are bits that are cringy to an Irish audience and, you know, bad kind of Irish accents. But um, as I say, there's worse. I mean, to my mind, The Quiet Man is far worse for all that kind of stuff, which is a film people laud. And I cannot stand. I can't bear to watch it. <laughs> he's so, such a thug in that. He's a complete thug. And, you know, that's much more shillelaghs and shamrocks and waving stuff in the air. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Much more so than this, which is quite a restrained film. Um, um, so I, I have... Um, so the first scene when they meet and everything is great, I thought, when he says, um, and this is what Myrna loved, when he said, I saw you at the opera and you wore a white dress, you know, mm. and he was just like, like this tender moment. Well, um, 
I have this book called Parnell Documentary History, and it was put out by the National Library of Ireland mm-hmm. in um, 1991. And they referenced a book that um, Catherine O'Shea wrote in 1914 about Parnell. And there are just these two brief um, paragraphs where when she first met him, she invited him to dinner and he never showed up. And the, everybody roasted her at the table, like, look at this empty seat. And they made mm-hmm. fun of her. So she went to the House of Commons and she insisted on seeing him. And she said, you know, why didn't you come to my dinner party? And he said, well, I haven't I haven't looked at my my post in days. You know, I'm sorry. And he was, you know, giving her the, the eye, the, the <coughs> this mesmeric eye. And so he takes her out to her carriage and um, he says, look, I'm going to my sister's wedding in Paris and I'll come to dinner as soon as I come back. And then she wrote, in leaning forward in the cab to say goodbye, a rose I was wearing in my bodice fell out onto my skirt. He picked it up and touching it lightly with his lips, placed it in his buttonhole. This rose I found long years afterwards done up in an envelope with my name and the date among his most private papers. And when he died, I laid it upon his heart. Jesus, oh, no. why didn't they use that in the film? <laughs> yeah, but didn't they mention that her dress, her white dress, had roses on it, I think? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think remember yeah, something yeah. about it. But he gave a very detailed description of what she was wearing, and, didn't, you know, and it was like there was nobody else there. And mm. yeah, it's Victorian kind of romantic mm-hmm. melodrama. I thought, did I mean, maybe you might disagree, but even though you got the feeling they cared for each other and loved each other, but you kind of felt this was a great passion and, you know, they should have been sort of rearing to kind of rip each other's clothes off. And that didn't come through mm. for me, which is what you're talking about, how much you love Clark Gable, that kind of magnetism about him. Um, and he did have that dialed down here, but... Um, Nothing like, close to carrying Scarlet up the stairs. Yeah, you know, there's taking no, them two at a time. To yeah. I didn't feel that Ravager. tension. Like, oh, it's coming. Like, something's about to happen. Like, there's about to be this, like, big, explosive, like, moment of sexual energy. Yeah, it's that weird. That didn't yeah. really happen. I didn't really expect it to happen either, which is yeah. possibly why I was, like, mentally They made it so out a chaste. Bit. You know, they took all the yes, sex out of it. They did. And so if you're going to pull back from the politics, grand, but then show us the sex, mm-hmm. and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're going to Hollywoodify something, maybe you should really go for it. You know, you should <laughs> give us the stuff that Hollywood fans love to see, which is, you know, Clark Gable. Like, sexing up the babes. R- yeah, sexing up the babes, ripping the shirt off, all that stuff. <laughs> but I do um, think what you said is really interesting about, um, like, the supporting characters. Like, there yeah. was almost, it was almost as if to me this could have been a camp classic if they'd kept more of the, like, hilarious one-liners, like, that Edna May Oliver delivered. Mm. I was... I loved those moments yeah. as well. Like I thought like this woman can carry a film. I would watch a whole film of her just doing this character and like we can leave, you know, Clark <laughs> and Myrna aside. Um, but yeah, I think there was a missed opportunity there to, you know, kind of camp it up. I understand why they didn't do it at the time because they probably felt it was quite a noble mm. picture with a lot of money behind it and a lot of history behind it. But in retrospect, I was yearning for a little bit more um, of their kind of snarky repartee. It was great. Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many kind of one-liners about it. You're, you're talking like the old maid you'll undoubtedly turn out to be and, you know, all sorts of thing about uh, the O'Gorman man saying he fought 19 jewels and it's kind of like, oh, really? Oh, to save a woman's honour. And she was saying, oh, is that what they're calling it now? I always <laughs> wondered what they, why they called it that, you know. It's full of those sorts of things. I completely agree. And know? when she bemoans the fact that she had gout instead of uh, hearing trouble <laughs> when, you know, one is uh, singing or threatening to sing. That was mm-hmm. another favorite yeah. moment of mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All good things. Um, it's funny um, when Myrna, they made six movies together, her and, and um, Clark Gable, they starred in six. And they did another one where they didn't share any scenes. But when they first met, it was at the Mayfair Ball, which Clark has this thing about the Mayfair Ball. He's either lands with women or he doesn't. 
So this is in 1933. And um, so she, Myrna was invited with by her friend Minna Gombell, who's, um, you know, was a big silent star and kind of went in and supporting roles in the talkies. And so they went with Clark and his wife. And then afterwards, they dropped Minna off first. So it's Myrna in the in the back of, you know, this vehicle with Clark and his wife and Clark starts coming on to her <laughs> he walks her to her door and gives her she says a monkey bite that lost left a scar for days so a hickey in other words so Myrna was incensed she pushed him off the porch into bushes and she yelled at him and went into the house and her um, friend was on her hands and knees looking out the window and to get a glimpse of Clark Gable she said Myrna I wouldn't care if he couldn't read <laughs> and Myrna said that's the kind of effect he had on women mm. you know that he just he you know they just flew around him. Did Myrna Loy also say that he was quite a sensitive soul on set, that he was sort of reading poetry and things like this? Yeah, and, she said that's know. how they would, when they closed mm-hmm. a film together, they would share a bottle of champagne and he would read sh- Shakespearean sonnets to her. Mm-hmm. He'd read poetry. Now, you know, oh, all right, after you wrap production, do you really want to hear anyone read anything? I mean, <laughs> I understand sharing the champagne, but mm-hmm. yeah, that no one else knew that, that it was just between yeah. them, those yeah. two. Is that something she wrote in her book? Yeah, that's in Being and Becoming. Wow, because I can understand when that kind of stuff turns up in like uh, like gossipy magazines at the time mm-hmm. that like, oh, they had mm-hmm. to amp up their relationship on set. But in this case, it's obviously well, somewhat it a, true. Well, it was a tender thing. It wasn't a sex thing. He would just read poetry. And she said they never slept together. And I, I kind of believe it because I think Myrna, you know, that that wasn't her type. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at her history with men, she didn't go for the Clark Gable type. But um, yeah, so um she yeah so they it was just really just poetry mm-hmm. and champagne that's it no sex i guess he saved that for other women but when she spurned him and then they did their next picture together um he was really rude to her on set you know uh-huh. he he would be nice to everybody but her kind of thing he was you know punishing her for spurning him but. It strikes me as a man who wasn't very sure of himself. I mean, there's, um, I mean, is it all a kind of a pose, this big macho pose, because he's just not, doesn't have that kind of confidence. I mean, he famously, his first wife, I think, was the one who kind of launched him or, you know, fixed his teeth or fixed his hair and kind of, you know, and he kind of dumped her famously, you know, when he became famous. If that, Well, that's one telling of the story. Maybe there's alternative views as well. But um yeah, I don't know. I'm not enough of a Clark Gable fan to really to say, but um, it was definitely launched by women. Mm. What's so funny is, um, you know, he was with Carol during this production and their romance was hot and heavy. Mm. And um, she played a couple of pa- practical jokes on him, which is funny. So he was complaining about the death scene, which it took a, a week to rehearse and shoot from stall. And um Carol turned up one day during that week and um, paid a prop band to change the record that they had on the turntable, which <laughs> was to set this funereal mood, this dirge kind of music. Mm, of course. And she put on a record that was, I'll be happy when you're, you're dead, you, you so-and-so. You? Yeah, you rascal you. That's <laughs> oh, it. Wow. That's what she put on. And then even better was um, she laughed during the premiere, during his death scene. <laughs> and then afterwards, she paid a pilot to drop leaflets all over MGM studio. And the leaflet said, 50 million Chinamen can't be wrong. And then it had excerpts from the Chinese press, good reviews for Parnell. (laughs) So she was really sticking it to them. They fought fought over that. She sent them doves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to say I love her gumption and all those stories. It yeah. sounds like they had maybe it wasn't fun when you were in the relationship, but it sounds like it was such a like exciting relationship. The two of them had such a you know unusual kind of sense of humor with each other mm-hmm. that she wouldn't let him 
be too serious about himself or take himself so seriously. Yeah, she was like, taking him down a peg, I suppose. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. probably what he needed, probably why they had such a like great. Yeah, but she was famously gutsy as well, wasn't she? I mean, mm-hmm. she just swore like a trooper and just didn't take any crap from anybody. So, you know, they were well suited. So definitely. Um, so um, one of my, you know, so you you both grew up with Parnell and I didn't come to him until really as, you know, through literature, through Joyce, you know, so um, I, I still find it fairly shocking that he wrote a poem when he was nine called Etu Healy. And it's cute because it's the way that our we take on our parents' passions when we're children and we sort of mirror them. But his father, John Joyce, was so enamored of the poem that he had them printed up and handed it out to all of his friends. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Joyce was so um, – it was like – one of those defining moments of his life when Parnell died mm. and the grief in his, you know, from his father and his home so that, you know, he, he did this um, little poem. But um, so it, it kind of reverberates throughout his work. But when you're growing up, how do you sort of encounter the Parnell legacy? Is it this reverential sort of thing or is it um, sort of the holdover of he let us down because of this sinful sort of carry on with Catherine O'Shea? Like how was how his legacy taught to you? Well, in my case, my only like real memory of learning about Parnell was the, through the Phoenix Park murders which are like featured in the film and I always thought they were quite juicy like I chose them to do my like leaving cert history project on because I thought it was like a really like interesting period of that period of history which to me like it's a cliche but it just seemed like a load of pictures of beardy men and I didn't (laughs) resonate with it very well I also didn't have a great history teacher um but in that part I think he comes off kind of as the hero because uh you know, as we see in the courtroom scene in Parnell, you know, it's proven that he didn't write the letters. So for me, there was no particular nationalistic connection to the person who Parnell was. I just kind of saw him as this guy who, you know, did write in this situation and came out on top. That was really like about as far as my opinion of Parnell went. Mm. Yeah, it's an, he's an interesting figure, really. I mean, I can't say that he figured very large in my education. I didn't do History for the Leaving Cert. I did it later in college. And I think he his sort of his legacy really was taken over by 1916. You know, so all of the stuff you grew up with around Irish nationalism, all the difficulty around Northern Ireland, all of that stuff was in the light of 1916 or in the shadow of 1916 more so. Um, I mean, he was he was kind of in terms of folk memory, I think he would have been remembered primarily for the sex scandal like he had famously it was the only sex scandal in Irish politics involved Parnell and there's been no sex scandals you know to everybody's disappointment or whatever <laughs> and there's this kind of a reticence in Irish public life to bring politicians public lives out into the open which I think is a good thing um, you know nobody really wants that even now even still it happens very rarely it's really only when it relates to financial scandals so I can't say I think he's an uncomfortable figure maybe for an awful lot or he was for an awful lot of Irish people a Protestant landowner and yet he was a national so he's a little bit of a mystery. He is a bit of an enigma. He, um, there have been sort of um, some novels about him and there was a television miniseries, I think, on RT in the early 90s about him in four or five parts, which wasn't bad. It was reasonably well received. So, And the, co- the politics of that time are immensely complicated. I mean, the film doesn't take on Northern Ireland or Ulster as it would have been then known. And I don't blame them. And we, you know, it's just... It's immensely complicated and frankly quite dull. I mean, all of these sort of introductions of various versions of the Home Mobile into Parliament 
kind of very stonewalling, you know, that went on, all of the other stuff that was going on, you know, the women's suffrage movement was starting to get going around that time as well, which is another interesting thing. So um, it's a complicated legacy, and I'm not even sure how well he would be even known. Say, if you were to ask your average school child, what do you know about Parnell? They might just know about the monument at the top of O'Connell Street or mm. think various things, you know, that he is a figure in Irish nationalism. But I think what happened afterwards, I think 1916 and what happened then um, is really what figures largest in people's imagination, cultural imagination in this country, I think. I think my regret in retrospect is that we didn't learn more about Catherine O'Shea because she sounds mm. fascinating. Like when I read little bits and pieces about her now I feel like she's someone who um, I would have really been interested in and responded to as like a teenage girl learning about history you know there was very few female mm-hmm. figures in Irish history that were highlighted except maybe Constance Markovich mm-hmm. um, so if Catherine O'Shea had been I mean I of course she didn't contribute to history in the same like enormous way that Parnell did or to the face of the country as we know it but uh, yeah I would have loved if there was you know a token page on She's written out of history, really, isn't she? Yeah, I, she I would think been. so as the kind of fallen woman or, you know, I mean, and bearing in mind that divorce was illegal here until comparatively recently. You know, she's again, this idea of a divorced, you know, man or whatever as a nationalist hero is it was always problematic for people, mm. I think. When you read about her now, she's such a sympathetic character and she yeah. even comes across as one in the film and that you do feel for her that she's stuck in this loveless marriage and she's yeah. still very young and she just wants to, you know, live her life and and move on and she's you know restrained by this it marriage was a, yeah it was extraordinarily brave of her in real life to have this affair in a way you know what I mean that she was and she had children with Parnell yeah. that's completely sanitised as well mm-hmm. and they had a child together who died as, a, as an infant I think while she was still married to O'Shea and he would have known about that so um yeah, it it's it it's a, it is a tragic story in lots of ways. Um, as when well. she went on, she lived quite a long time after that. It didn't quite die in poverty, but in much reduced circumstances. So, and I think the line died out with um, one of her children as well. The children, one of the children, yeah, they had I together. Think so. yeah. yeah, there's no surviving descendants of Parnell. At they all. had um, three girls together, and mm-hmm. one died sh- shortly after birth. Yes, yeah. one died um, in 1909, and then the other one died in 1947. Now, um, Myrna Loy's biographer, this woman lied said that one of their children served as uh, a sort of a consultant or advisor for the film. Oh, interesting. I saw so up, I, yeah. I, I went and looked it up and I saw the birth dates for the daughter and I thought, well, it could have been the one, the last one, Catherine, who died in 47, but it wasn't. It was actually her son with O'Shea oh. who's listed in the credits as, you know, a special sort of advisor. His name is Gerard. Yes. Um, I saw that Gerard William Henry O'Shea or right. something. So something that like was that. their yeah. first child. So oh, she okay. had two children with Willie O'Shea and yeah. that was the oldest one. Well, that's so he really, did. really surprising. But I couldn't yeah. find anything about how long he stayed in Hollywood or if he mm. worked on anything else or I couldn't find any any information on that. But Well, that's particularly interesting because Captain O'Shea comes out of it so badly. I mean, he's not quite a pantomime villain, but, you know, he is quite, cal- well, very calculating. With and that English accent, yes, you know, right away. Yeah. <laughs> villain. And the monocle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. There's two monocles and that oh. signals, yeah, there's a, uh, what, a piggish in the stand yes. where he's been oh. discovered the yeah. Monocle sort of falls, and then I think the first time we see William O'Shea, Captain O'Shea, he's got a monocle in as well. Yeah, it was not subtle. No, not at all. <laughs> it's very. I mean, all they needed was to twirl a moustache, yeah, exactly. you know, or tie a lady to a train track or something. But yeah, do you want to talk a little bit because the courtroom scene I think is other than the ones with um, you know um, Clark and Myrna, that's the best scene because it mm. is so cinematic. Yeah. About so uh, maybe for readers who don't know Irish history at all, maybe a little background on the Phoenix Park murders and then the letter. Um, might be helpful if you want to share that maybe 
Shall I recall my leading yes, search history? Yes, please do. <laughs> you didn't do it for for no reason, right? I know, right? Here's your just, t- chance just to shine. my mind 20 years back. <laughs> um, so as far as I remember, the Phoenix Park murders were, um, it was Richard Piggott had written these defamatory letters signed as Parnell and sold them to a newspaper saying that he had encouraged the murderers in the Phoenix Park murders to do the deed, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and was and who were who was murdered again? It was like Lord Cavendish or something. Yeah, two um, senior British officials in yeah, Ireland. Okay. Anyway, if the, not the not the Governor General, the Secretary is well, it's under Secretary yeah, two, two and figureheads two, anyway. Yeah. You represented you know English rule of Ireland mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the Invincibles, I think, was the name of the yes. um, terrorist organisation as we would know them now. That killed. I think were they stopped and shot or just shot as they were. It was quite a shocking murder at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was in. In Broad Daylight in Phoenix Park, which is like one of the, Mm -hmm. you know, most striking elements of it. Um, And then Richard Piggott was found guilty of forging the letters. And I know in the movie he dramatically walks out of the courtroom and shoots himself. Uh, Spoiler (laughs) alert. Um, (laughs) Like immediately uh, when he's basically realized he's found out. But I think in real life he um, killed himself like, you know, some weeks later in a hotel in Spain or something. Mm -hmm. So it, it roughly they did you know, treat that area of history fairly faithfully. There wasn't too much divulging from yeah. history books there. It's very broad brush strokes, but they, they do get certain things right. You know, that he, they that Parnell used obstructionist tactics and the, the Irish party used obstructionist tactics in Parliament, um, in the British Parliament as a way, well, you won't let us have our Parliament in Dublin, so we're going to obstruct you as much as we can. So it hinted at that, um, even though in a very kind of basic way. Um, and I think as well, in, yeah, in the courtroom scenes, I did, yeah, they are quite, they're very broad um, kind of, uh, wide shots or whatever so it does look very impressive I thought the parliament scenes were actually quite nicely done as well considering it was a set again it looked comparatively realistic to me as, as far as I as, as I can, could tell um, so um, yeah <laughs> we've lost we've lost the thread sorry you were asking yeah. no no so mm-hmm. um, just so um, people who probably don't have any context for that if they were going to go and watch this which you can do by googling Parnell 1937 ok.ru um, they have the uh, site up there, the um, the Russians. Um, so, you know, that you don't need, people probably don't have a lot of context to put this in in Irish mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. but that this was a, a real story. It really did occur. Mm-hmm. And so how did he, what, what, what did he do to be found out again? I think it's it's so good. Oh, was it heresy? There was a word that he misspelled. Hes- oh, her- hes- hesitancy. Hesitancy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, which is true, actually. Um, he misspelled hesitancy in... Uh, his forged document that Parnell was supposed to have written and in basically every document where he ever wrote that word. So it was actually really easy to pin it on him. Now, in the film, obviously, it's Catherine who rushes in and is like, I was looking through your papers and I found the, I've got the hard evidence in my hand. And she does save the day, as you said, but uh, I'm not sure actually who can be credited with that in real life. Mm-hmm. It's it is very broad brush strokes, but they do hit an awful lot of things that did happen. It's just that everything's compressed. So I think it's roughly about ten years worth of history compressed into what seems to be less than a year. <laughs> so, um, but they they hit certain things. They get seem to get certain things right, and they you know. But it's like I say, I do, I, I think I think 
historical accuracy or not in feature films is a difficult one because I think you need to allow directors, writers, actors their head a bit and give their interpretation of events. People do get very exercised about these things. And similarly with literary adaptations, it's kind of like, oh, this isn't the book. This isn't how I envisioned the hero or the heroine or whatever. But um, I think it's actually really interesting to get a take, somebody else's take on it, you know. And I thought it was really interesting that they chose to make that film in America at that time in 1937. And I've kind of wondered what was the impetus behind it. Why that story at that time in 1937 in America, you know, um, was it purely were they thinking about an Irish American audience or was it simply the melodrama and the romance of the story, um, even though they sanitized it in the in the end product? Well, it was a, a, a Broadway show, a play in 1935, mm-hmm. and okay. it did fairly well. Um, now, what probably made it problematic was because Breen was so wary about either inflaming the English or inflaming um, Irish Catholics, either in the States or in Ireland. But um, there was a production, and if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it, called Beloved Enemy mm-hmm. from 1936 with Brian O'Hearn as, wait for it. Michael Collins <laughs> oh, wow. and Merle Oberon. And that's a Goldwyn Studios production. So part of that was Mayer looking at these prestige pictures that other studios were doing. Uh, and then you had a Louis Pasteur um, uh, uh, picture as well and saying, we need to do more historical things, mm-hmm. more things of like lasting value or importance. Um, so, you know, the thing is about um, Beloved Enemy is it's only 90 minutes. So it's not great, but you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. have that that sort of laborious feel that this picture has, Mm -hmm. this could have been shaved by a good 20 minutes or more. It felt quite long. For a a picture at that time, two hours, or it's almost two hours, which is quite a long time. I mean, for 1937, when I think an hour and a half was a bit more standard or even shorter again, you know. There's surely like two or three speeches they could have lived out. But it's interesting what you say about um, Hollywood being attracted by this story and I wonder is it the godlike worship of Parnell is that part of mm-hmm. what attracted them to it and that seems to be somewhat accurate um, but I think yeah they they probably really like the idea of like the scene with the uh, evicted mother and her children mm-hmm. who by the way one. is so she is so extra that actress um, <laughs> she is really giving it socks at that performance um, <laughs> I think they liked the idea of maybe of having, you know, this political figure be like quite literally worshipped by Mm -hmm. these Irish peasants, you know, in the couple of scenes that are set in Ireland. Mm -hmm. He'll get his crown in heaven. Oh, that was the line. It was like, who's that lady at Oscar? I think they had done a little bit of their research as well. It did, it seemed comparatively accurate, and, you know, the taking down the thatch. So rather than, you know, knocking down, that was the first thing they did. They removed the thatch when True, they were evicting actually, somebody. Yeah. And that did seem to be what was happening. And the way they were set up and posed, if you've ever looked at Illustrated London News from around that time, it does look very much like that. Now, obviously, it's this dramatic license there as well. But um, I think anybody who films anything set in Ireland at that time has to look at Illustrated London News. I was actually, it made me think in, in certain aspects of Black 47. I don't know if you saw yeah. it last last year which I thought was actually a really good movie it was gorgeously shot and again I was looking at it thinking they've definitely looked at Illustrated London News like everything was very well posed and you know it's the landscape and the um, you know the cottage the thing about this film presumably that's all on the lot on the set there was no location filming you know I wouldn't have thought so looking at it certainly didn't look that way but there were decent sets you know it was pretty good from production value point of view as we've said you know yeah sometimes I feel like it's the screenwriter's job to 
you know, take liberties with yeah. history. And then the people who are doing like production costumes and makeup and all of that kind of stuff feel like, mm. well, they're, you know, going rogue with the script, but I still have to stay somewhat true. Like in my little corner of mm. this mm-hmm. job that I have in this film, you know, I'm expected to be somewhat accurate. So that seems to be the case in this film for mm-hmm. me anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I'd say so. And Myrna said she had 150 costume fittings for wow. this with Adrian. Okay. And it was a rare film where Adrian actually dressed her. Normally she was with Dolly Tree, O'Shea of the Cellophane Wedding Veil. Yes. So much. <laughs> One of my favorites. Rosalind Russell. Me and Megan have had many Twitter exchanges about it. <laughs> it is something to behold if you haven't seen that in okay. uh, Man Proof from 1938 with Myrna. Um, Dolly Tree made that. But um, so that it's kind of a rare event for her to have these. Mm-hmm. She said she had to learn how to walk and move in them um, because, you know, it, it's it's not something that's intuitive and you don't just walk that way in one of mm-hmm. these enormous ball gowns. But um, I think I have to declare my bias here about this film is that, you know, it contains so many of my favorite people like Adrian is probably my all time favorite costume designer. Mm-hmm. And it's just not you know, what I want from him, which is like very <laughs> selfish, you know, it's not anyone really involved in the film's fault. But, you know, what I want from him is like gorgeous, like liquid, like 1930s mm. gowns. You know, that's what I contemporary love him for. Stuff. Yeah, contemporary stuff mm-hmm. of the era. And I suppose it's the same with the performances from the two leads as well. Mm. Um, originally slated for Katie was Joan Crawford. I heard about this. And, yeah. Um, so yeah. she she was writing about this and she said that um, it was the only time that they ever fell out, um, she and Clark, and their relationship went from pretty much um, 1931 to his death. So mm. 30 years they were together. And he wanted her to be in it. And she said no. She said that the script was a dud. Mm. But really it was, I think, was because she wasn't the star or the main attraction. And she did the smartest thing she probably ever did in her career, which she said, I'm too modern for period pictures so she did my gorgeous hussy the year before in 36 and it didn't do well and again the big you know mm-hmm. um the big sort of confection dresses but while she was in you know contemporary clothes the other big women in mgm norma Shearer and garbo were in all these period costumes so who are the young women following they're following joan and adrian mm-hmm. and so i think that was really the the one thing that probably helped her star status more than most is that she cut down on her competition that way by not doing costume pictures. Yeah, to the audience, I suppose she was more attainable. She was this aspirational woman. They wanted to be as glamorous as her. And mm-hmm. with someone mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Myrna as Catherine, you're not going to see her that in that light at all. So mm-hmm. Myrna was slated for the last of Mrs. Cheney and they switched So with William Powell. So it was the only um, picture that Joan made with William Powell, mm-hmm. who I love. But he's not really in that a whole lot anyway. It's kind of a minor role. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good. It's worth saying. But um, I think she felt like she dodged a bullet when she got out of this. But, mm-hmm. you know, Myrna says she loves this picture and she thinks they're both really good in it. I mean, so. I think I read somewhere that it's in a, a well-known book that lists the 50 worst films of all time, oh, really? um, yeah. which I've never read and I didn't hadn't heard of the book. Um, that was like one of the first things when I Googled it that came up. So I was like, OK, this is going to be a travesty. Um, but it definitely wasn't like it wouldn't rate in my 50 worst films that I've seen at all. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. that level. It was just, you know, bringing all of my emotional baggage about Mark <laughs> Abel to the picture. It was disappointing. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Actually, I heard about that as well. And I was looking at it thinking, really, this is the, I mean, I can think away worse, you know, movies from any era that should be, you know, who knows, but, you know, some 
I think, again, it's that not being able to see Clark Gable as anything but the kind of macho hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting what you should say about, I mean, I know nothing about costume really or fashion, but I thought they were taking certain liberties with the dresses. I think they made them more beautiful than they would have been at the time. I mean, is this is kind of the high Victorian, late Victorian, weren't skirts kind of out to here, like you couldn't get through doors or am I kind of, maybe I've got my periods wrong or whatever. But I thought Adrienne or who, you know, mm. in, in as much for my untrained eye when I was looking at it, saying he's doing his best with what must have been a really restrictive kind of palette in terms of what women were allowed to wear with these massive skirts and very pl- and maybe huge brooches or lace or whatever yeah. it was. But he really went all out. I mean, there was beautiful kind of fur wraps and muffs and things that she wore into Parliament, I think, a couple of times. <laughs> oh, that astrakhan jacket yeah, and the yeah. muff that she wears. That yes. was the first thing we see her in. I mm-hmm. love it. Lovely hats and all of that kind of thing, which, did, again, I th- uh, didn't seem that contemporary to me, but I could be completely incorrect about that. But I think he did a great job of making her seem like this exotic animal when she went mm-hmm. into Parliament which is probably the, you know, the only purpose of that costume was to make her seem, you know, very feminine and mm. completely at odds with what was going on, you know, inside. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, like accuracy wise, I'd say it would be like for, cl- for Hollywood, pretty, yeah, pretty close, yeah. I would say, yeah. um, because I think there's probably just restrictions in terms of movement mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like trying to get from one part of a set to another. They probably yeah. couldn't have things be hyper realistic in terms of how mm-hmm. enormous skirts were. But. Yeah, I wonder why they were in corsets. That's the other thing that made you know um, they would have been interesting. Yeah, I <laughs> they looked very tightly kind yeah, of pulled I would in. Say so. they? And they they had that posture that you get mm-hmm. when you're um, mm-hmm. wearing corset on film, which is just you know add rigid a bit yeah. to the role as well because mm-hmm. you're kind of tense. Mm. The death yeah. scene, though. Oh my God, the death scene. <laughs> I was waiting for you to bring up the death scene, it's, Megan. It's it's really the worst part of the film. It's just so it's so long. Yeah, it yeah. goes on forever, and he has a crowd about him. Mm-hmm. Like, hi, we're all going to see Parnell die. <laughs> I know it is. It's yeah, but. Yeah, it's, it's something you'd expect to see, actually, interesting enough in a Victorian play. So I wonder, is it was it, maybe it worked well on stage, um, but it doesn't work at all in the film. Um, That's so. a good point. It's probably a holdover from yeah, the stage yeah, production. Yeah. And I, that would make sense. But he would feel an enormous amount of pressure for that scene because written down that scene to any actor must seem very off-putting because it's just kind of a slow, drawn-out, like, little mini monologue. Mm-hmm. Like almost cartoonish you know in his his last words and then oh no wait he's still still something something else <laughs> yeah. he's gonna say something else is this gonna be it is this a pro- profound moment yeah. um so if he was very nervous like as he said mm. about that scene i can see why because it wasn't a hard, it wasn't an easy one to play for mm. even the best of actors yeah yeah well, Long Drawn Out doesn't begin to cover it really, you know, <laughs> so it's it's kind of, well, it's like that fine line between comedy, you know, farce and tragedy, you know, maybe. So, I mean, I didn't quite laugh out loud at it, but it was, it, it didn't did. work. I you did. did. I okay. think there was, there, there was a brief, mm-hmm. uh, ha, exclamation because it was just, mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it was like wonderfully bad. It was <laughs> so, so bad it was good, which is, you know, a winner in my book. Well, <laughs> I got a little kick out of it, which is, you know, yeah. a little treat at the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's well, yeah, I can. I, yeah, I do see where you're coming from. My maybe my equivalent um, moment was the um, the guy making the speech in the room um, when they thought they were going to get home rule. I don't know who was the guy playing it. You know, this old man coming up to Parnell and I've oh, dreamed yeah. of this moment. And I didn't feel like that was very well explained. I don't yeah. Who was he? I don't on. even sh- I'm not 
not even sure he was credited. I think he's on, it's a, it's a Mr. Uh, Mr. O'Brien or something. Yeah, or O'Brien. Yeah. Maybe we needed to know more historical yeah. context for that moment because... Yeah, because I thought it was interesting. They didn't need to be there again. Again, we're back to the script, I suppose, and maybe things that worked well on stage against what will work in a film. Um, but trying to show by yeah, the yeah. moment, I suppose, with someone who wasn't... Yeah, Catherine. but just, I, but almost trying to explain, you know, the Irish cause or Irish nationalism in this one elderly man who's, I've waited all my life for this moment where we're going to finally have self-rule. Um, even though it really wasn't going to be self-rule or complete independence, it was just, you know, a parliament, an Irish parliament. So um, there were odd little moments in it like that. So um, maybe the fundamental problem with it is the script. Um, maybe they were too referential or reverential to Parnell as a man and also maybe to the source material of the play as well. I don't know. Hmm. Well, um, thousands of complaints flooded into MGM <laughs> as fans wow. wrote letters complaining, you know, don't do this to Clark and, and Myrna. But I would have really, been one of those fans. It clearly. didn't hurt them any. Um, right after this film, there they there was the biggest poll ever taken of the U.S. and Canada, 20 million people. And those 20 million people voted them, Clark and uh, Myrna, King and Queen of Hollywood. And I do want to add that Myrna says that um, William Powell is fourth. And so he sent her a florist box, she said, the size of a sofa. It was filled with sour grapes and it said, um, love William the Fourth. Um, <laughs> so William Powell. Um, so yeah, I mean, their, their crown, they had, you know, um, um, that guy, Ed Sullivan, gave it to them, presented their, you know, crappy crowns and stuff. So it didn't really hurt their <laughs> star power any, yeah, in yeah. any way. Like really MGM blamed the, um, the director, John Stahl. He didn't blame them. So mm-hmm. it's funny how it worked in those days. Like sometimes a bad picture could just go unnoticed if you didn't go to see it in the movies. You you know didn't care that they had you know one stinker, mm-hmm. and then sometimes you know the gossip columnists made such a huge furore about it that mm-hmm. it almost you know they almost created you know the the hysteria around you know someone did a bad film. Oh my god, what are we? How well, they are we made gonna, so how are we many. Manage? They made so many hits. I mean, I can't think of another bad picture that they made in the nineteen thirties. So. Mm-hmm. No, that was such a good period for Hollywood as well, like 1937, mm-hmm. you know, so it it, it does stand out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, listen back next time when I'm talking about Irene Dunn and If I Were Free. Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs>